Section 16 of A Commentary on the Epistle to the Romans by John Calvin, translated by Francis Sibson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Romans 11, verses 1 to 23. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people whom he foreknew. What ye not, what the scripture saith of Elijah, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men, who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace, otherwise work is no more work. I say then, the tendency of St. Paul's former dissertation concerning the blindness and obstinacy of the Jews might appear to lead to the conviction that Christ, by his advent, had removed the promises of the Almighty God from the Jews, deprived of all hope of salvation, to other nations. The Apostle here anticipates the objection, and so moderates his former observations concerning the rejection of the Jews, that none of his readers can imagine the covenant formerly entered into with Abraham had been now abrogated. Paul flatly denies the opinion, and afterwards clearly proves its falsehood, that the alone deliverer of his people had so completely forgotten his covenant that the Jews were now entirely estranged from the kingdom of God, as the heathens had been before the coming of Christ. Nor does the question turn on this point whether God has justly rejected his people, or without desert, cause, or default. For the Apostle has proved in the last chapter that the rejection of God's righteousness, from a preposterous zeal by the Jewish people, had been visited with a just punishment on account of their pride, had met with a merited blindness, and the Israelites were thus finally deprived of the covenant. The question in dispute is not the cause of God's casting off the Israelites, but whether the covenant formerly entered into by the judge of all the world with the patriarchs had been abolished, although the Jews had deservedly merited the divine vengeance in their rejection. There can be no greater absurdity than to imagine any perfidious conduct on the part of man can weaken the covenant of God, since according to the principle universally maintained by Paul, adoption is gratuitous and founded on God alone, not man, and on this account it must remain firm and inviolable, although the most impious unbelief of the whole human race should conspire to abolish and overthrow this fatherly love of the Most High. The following difficulty is to be solved, and objection answered, that the truth and the election of a merciful father is not to be believed to depend on the dignity of the human race. For I am an Israelite. Before entering upon the subject to be discussed, he incidentally proves by his own example how absurd it is to imagine the Jewish nation to be forsaken of the fountain of all justice. Paul himself was an Israelite, descended from the most remote posterity, not a proselyte, or recently engrafted into the civil government and policy of Israel. Since, therefore, he justly deserved to be reckoned among the most chosen of God's servants, he afforded a decided proof that the grace of God rested and abode in Israel. The apostle assumes, therefore, the proposition that God's covenant with Abraham's seed is not abolished as proved, which he will, however, afterwards explain and handle in a more complete manner. By calling himself of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, as well as by assuming the title of an Israelite, he intends to establish his claim to the character of a genuine descendant from the father of believers, as in Philippians 3.4. 
for the interpretation adopted by some commentators that paul was descended from the tribe of benjamin which had nearly been exterminated as affording a strong recommendation of the mercy of the divine protector seems forced and far-fetched god hath not cast away the answer is negative and moderate for had the apostle given a flat denial to the rejection of the jews he would have contradicted himself by adopting this correction, he shows the casting off of the Jews to be of such a character as not to invalidate the promise of the fountain of all goodness. The answer is divided into two parts. First, that the Almighty and Everlasting Father has by no means cast off, contrary to the fidelity of his covenant, the whole offspring of Abraham. For the effect of adoption does not indeed exist in all the sons of the patriarch by carnal descent, because in the second place the secret election of the giver of all grace precedes adoption thus the general rejection of the israelites could not prevent the continuance of the salvation of some of the seed of abraham for the visible body itself of the jewish people had been so rejected that no member of the spiritual body of christ could fail or be destroyed should any of my readers propose the question whether circumcision were in such a manner a common symbol and sign of the grace of god to all the jews that they deserve to be reckoned among the people who alone enjoyed the glory and hope of his children i return an immediate answer that the external call is of itself altogether inefficacious without grace and this honour if rejected on being offered is deservedly taken from unbelievers a special and peculiar people in this way always continues to exist in whom god exhibits a mark and proof of his own constancy and paul derives the origin of this unchanging firmness from the secret election of a propitious and reconciled god for the lord to whom all honour and glory belong is not here said to have respect to faith but to continue firm to his purpose in not casting away the people whom he hath foreknown i must here again repeat a former observation that foreknowledge does not mean a certain speculative view by which the uncreated cause of all effects foresaw the character of each individual of the human family but points to the good pleasure of the decree of the sovereign disposer of all events by which he hath chosen for his children those who were not yet born and had no power to insinuate themselves into the favour of the author of all happiness thus galatians four nine paul says they are known of god because he prevents them by his grace and favour and calls them to a knowledge of christ we now clearly understand that although the universal calling of the most high may not be productive of any faith yet the fidelity of our everlasting father continues unchanged for he always preserves his church while the elect remain the head of the church notwithstanding he invites all people in common and without consideration to himself yet he does not internally draw any except those who are known by infinite wisdom to be his own and who are given by the father to the son the lord full of sweetness and benignity will continue the faithful guard and guardian of his own to the very end what ye not since the number of believers in christ was so very few among the jewish people they would necessarily conclude from this circumstance that the whole race of abraham was rejected and the thought would steal across their minds that no sign or symbol of divine grace existed in such a scene of ruin desolation and deformity for since adoption was the sacred bond by which the sons of abraham were kept collected under the faith of the sovereign of the universe it was altogether improbable that the jewish people would be dispersed and scattered in so miserable and unhappy a manner provided the fatherly love of the god of the patriarchs had not been withdrawn from the support and blessing of their descendants 
Paul removes this stumbling block by quoting the very appropriate example of Elijah, during whose restoration of the law so dreadful a desolation is reported to have taken place in the number of believers that no appearance of the church of God remained, and every vestige of divine grace seemed to be obliterated. Still, however, the church of the great ruler and preserver of the world was wonderfully saved, as if it had been concealed in the safeguard of a tomb. It is the height of folly, therefore, to ascertain the number of the church by means of our senses and judgment. If indeed this distinguished prophet, so strikingly endowed with the abundant light of the spirit of holiness, of consolation and of truth, when desirous to reckon the number of God's people by his own judgment, laboured under such a deception, what may we not expect to be our lot, whose keenest perspicacity is dullness itself when compared with the knowledge of this servant of the Most High? Let us, therefore, draw no rash conclusion on this subject, but let this remain fixed in our hearts, that the church, which appears to our eyes nothing, is cherished and preserved by the secret providence of the alone refuge of the afflicted. Let us never forget the folly and pride of those who determine the number of the elect by the measure of their own sense and judgment. For the protector and comforter of his people can, by means attended with no difficulty on his part, and wholly concealed from our view, preserve his elect in a surprising manner, when all seems involved in one common ruin. We are desirous to impress upon the attention of our readers that no event has befallen us which was not experienced by the holy patriarchs of old, and this consideration has a powerful effect in confirming our faith. Hence Paul, both in this and other parts of his epistles, carefully compares the state of his own time with the ancient condition of the church. Such a plan prevents us from looking on any change with novelty, and we know how weak and unprepared minds are distressed by any new event. The phrase, in Elijah, means in the history or transactions of this prophet, but I think Paul adopted a Hebraism in this passage, for the Hebrew particle corresponding to the Greek frequently signifies of or concerning Elijah how he maketh intercession to God against Israel. Elijah proves his great affection for the Lord by not hesitating to become opposed to his nation on account of the glory of his everlasting shepherd, and to pray for its destruction, because he considered the religion and worship of God had been lost among the Israelites. The error of the prophet consisted in condemning the whole nation, himself only accepted, as guilty of impiety, and in praying for its severe punishment at the hand of the Lord. The 1 Kings 19.10, cited by Paul, contains no imprecation but a mere complaint. Since, however, his complaint implies a total despair of the religion of the whole Jewish nation, we may rest assured that he devoted it to destruction. Elijah proclaimed the spread of impiety to be so extensive over all Judea as to have taken possession of all its borders, since he thought no worshipper of the God of heaven and earth remained but himself. I have reserved to myself seven thousand. The Lord intended, by using a definite for an indefinite number, to point out the great multitude which undoubtedly worshipped Jehovah. Since, therefore, the grace of God has so extensive an influence, even during periods of the most deplorable impiety, it is our bounden duty not to judge all those to be votaries of Satan whose piety does not openly manifest itself to our view. Let the following truth take full possession of our mind. Though impiety abounds in every part of the world, and the horrors of religious and moral confusion are everywhere displayed, yet the salvation of many continues shut up and secured under the seal of the alone founder of the church. 
but to prevent any one from making this a pretext for the indulging in sloth as the generality of professors seek a hiding place for their vices under the secret protection and guard of the rock of ages it is our duty to make the following observation that salvation is secured only for these steady votaries of the faith of god who exhibit integrity of conduct and freedom from pollution and sin the circumstance also connected with the judgment of the lord must be carefully attended to that those finally continue firm and secure who have not by any external bowing of the knee prostituted their body to the worship of idols the affections of these worshippers were not only preserved from impurity but their bodies were untainted by the least uncleanness and superstition even so then at this present time also paul applies the example to his own period and for the purpose of establishing the similitude in its various parts calls them a remnant when compared with the great number of impious characters whose vices were daily in view the apostle at the same time alludes to the prophecy of isaiah already quoted and shows that the faith of god continues to shine forth in the midst of the melancholy and confused desolation of the people of the most high since a certain remnant still continues to exist to confirm this with greater certainty he expressly calls those who continued believers by the grace of god a remnant that afforded an undoubted evidence of the unchangeable election of infinite wisdom in the same way also the lord said to elijah when the whole jewish people had revolted to idolatry that he had preserved seven thousand and hence the conclusion necessarily follows that the kindness and love of our eternal father and saviour had rescued them from the jaws of destruction paul does not here speak simply of grace but he recalls us to election that we may learn to rely and depend with reverence on the secret counsel and decree of god one of the propositions here stated by the apostle is the small number who are saved when contrasted with the great multitude of those who take to themselves the name of the people of the most high the other proposition is that the elect are saved by the power of the giver of all grace without any claim to merit on their parts the election of grace is a hebraism and means gratuitous election and if by grace then it is no more of works the amplification is derived from comparing opposite subjects for the grace of god and the merit of works are so contrasted with each other that the establishment of one of these is the subversion of the other if also no consideration of works can be admitted without obscuring the gratuitous goodness of eternal wisdom which paul is so very desirous to commend in election what answer will those fanatics be able to give our apostle who makes the cause of election to consist in that dignity which the all-wise foresees to exist in the descendants of adam for whether past or future works are considered this opinion of paul will always militate against the doctrine of foreseen works as determining the cause of all things to elect his people since the apostle says that grace leaves no room for works paul is not here disputing only concerning our reconciliation with god nor the immediate or proximate causes of our salvation but he ascends still higher and considers why the lord to whom all praise and glory belong has chosen some before the foundation of the world and passed by others he asserts that god is induced to make this distinction between the children of adam from no other cause than his own mere goodwill and pleasure for paul contends that every concession made to works detracts so much from grace it hence follows that it is absurd and ridiculous to mingle up the foreknowledge of works with election for the reward of works is already established if god elects some and reprobates others according to his foreknowledge of their being worthy or unworthy of salvation and the grace of god will not have entire dominion and rule but will only be considered to have a half share in the cause of election 
for as paul in his former dissertation concerning the justification of abraham says the reward to him that worketh is not reckoned of grace but of debt so he now derives his argument from the same source if works be taken into consideration where god adopts a certain number of men to salvation a reward can be claimed as due to their good actions and gratuitous kindness is subverted although indeed paul is here discoursing concerning election yet because the reasoning adduced by him is general it ought to be extended to the whole chain of argumentation used in considering our salvation the following truth must be acknowledged and felt that so often as our salvation is attributed to the grace of our heavenly father the author of all happiness the merits of works must be entirely renounced and we must believe the righteousness of works to be completely annihilated whenever the name of grace is taken into our lips what then israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for but the election hath obtained it and the rest were blinded according as it is written god hath given them the spirit of slumber eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear unto this day and david saith let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their backs always what then israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for because the subject here discussed was difficult paul proposes a question as if he was perplexed by doubt he was however desirous to give greater certainty to the following answer by the very doubt he proposes paul intimates that no other reason can be given than the vain labour of the jews in seeking for salvation because they struggled with a preposterous zeal notwithstanding he here makes no mention of the cause yet he was desirous it should be understood since he had expressly given a statement of it in a former passage his expressions convey the following sense we need not be surprised to find israel accomplishing nothing by her struggles after righteousness and he then subjoins his declaration concerning election for if israel has deservedly obtained nothing what have others acquired whose case or condition was not superior who cannot see that election alone maketh all the distinction but the signification of this word is doubtful some consider it to be taken collectively for the elect themselves that the parts of the antithesis may correspond to each other nor do i disapprove of this opinion provided at the same time they grant me that the word election implies more than elect intimating this to have been the alone cause of our enjoying divine mercy as if paul had said those who rely on merits have not obtained but such as depend for salvation on the gratuitous election of god for he here institutes a direct comparison between the whole body of the israelitish people and the remnant whose salvation was secured by the grace of god it hence follows that the cause of salvation does not reside in men but depends on the mere good pleasure and will of god and the rest were blinded as the elect alone are freed from destruction by the grace of god so all who are not elected must necessarily remain in blindness for paul when he considers the reprobates makes the beginning of their ruin and condemnation to arise from their being forsaken of the lord all his proofs which are collected rather from various parts of the scriptures than taken from any one writer seem to be foreign to the design of paul if more carefully examined according to the circumstances of the passages adduced blindness and hardness of heart are stated in all the apostles quotations to be as it were the scourges of god inflicted upon the wicked as punishments of their crimes already committed but paul was desirous to prove in this passage that such as have been reprobated by god before the creation of the world are blinded and not those who have already merited such a punishment by their own wickedness 
this difficulty admits the following brief solution that the perverseness of our nature when forsaken of infinite holiness is the source and origin of the impiety which provokes the indignation of god to inflict punishment in so striking a manner paul's quotations therefore were not irrelevant to the subject under consideration namely eternal reprobation since it is the spring and origin of those awful manifestations of divine judgment mentioned by isaiah and david as the tree produces the fruit and the fountain is the source and spring of the river the wicked indeed on account of their crimes are punished with blindness by the just and merited judgment of god but if we inquire into the fountain and origin of their ruin we shall come to this conclusion that since they are cursed of god they can draw down and heap upon their own heads by all their deeds sayings and counsels nothing but a curse footnote men which were reprobated were offered unto god in a mass of perdition and utterly corrupted for God decreed to produce them not elsewhere but out of the seed of Adam, and forasmuch as by his free purpose he would not bestow his mercy on many which is utterly to refuse, thereof followed rejection, whereby they were left in their native sin. Father, forsomuch as God suffereth not his creatures to be idle, they are also perpetually pricked forward to work, and for that they were not healed, they do all things according to their corrupt nature, which, although they seem sometimes to be beautiful works, yet before God they are sins moreover according as their wicked facts deserve god many times punisheth in them sins by other sins as in the romans many are said to have been delivered up unto a reprobate mind for that when they knew god they glorified him not as god romans one twenty four and twenty six god oftentimes isaiah six ten either by himself or by evil angels sendeth cogitations and offereth occasions which if we were upright might be taken in the best part but forasmuch as we are not renewed we are by them driven unto evil afterwards justly and worthily followeth damnation for sinners and finally the declaration of the power and justice of god is the last effect of reprobation and all these things follow reprobation god useth sins which are continually committed to the ends which he himself hath appointed and forasmuch as this is not done of him rashly but by his determinate counsel how can it be that after a sort sins are not comprehended under reprobation god doth not properly stir up men unto sin but yet he useth the sins of wicked men and also guideth them lest they should pass beyond their bounds for god dealeth not alone but wicked men and the devil also do use their naughty endeavour in working but when we say that the act itself which afterward through our own fault is evil is brought forth by the chiefest good that is by god and by us that is by our will how shall we understand this whether does god do it wholly or we wholly or whether it be partly from him and partly from us and here we draw this producement to the very act of our will we answer if consideration of the whole be referred unto the cause we must speak after one sort if it be referred unto the effect after another sort if the whole be referred to the cause so that we understand our will to be the whole cause of the action that it be able by itself to work without god it is not true for unless god would assent thereunto it should not be able to bring forth action so god although by his absolute power he might perform the work itself by himself yet as the course of things is he will not deal alone but will have the creature to be a doer together with him by this means are neither the will nor yet god said to be the whole cause but if it be referred to the effect itself god and the will are the full cause for god and the will make the whole effect although they be joined together in action i will show the thing by an example 
for bringing forth of an action we have a will and an understanding and our will maketh the whole effect and our understanding is the cause of the whole effect but the one is nigh the other farther off and so it is of the will and of god the will doth all and god doth all but one is the first cause and the other is the second peter martyr's commonplaces End footnote. nay the cause of eternal reprobation is so hidden that we can do nothing else but admire the incomparable counsel and purpose of god as the last clause of this chapter proves there is great folly in the conduct of such as endeavour to conceal this first cause which is hidden from our sense and judgment under the veil and pretext of near and most manifest causes whatever allusion is made to them in conversation this implies that god had not freely determined and surely purposed concerning the whole human race before adam's fall to the good pleasure of his will for in the first place he condemns the vicious and depraved seed of our first parent and in the second recompenses in a peculiar manner according to their deserts the crimes of every individual god hath given to them a spirit paul i doubt not cited isaiah six nine as it is in matthew thirteen fourteen luke eight ten john twelve forty and luke acts twenty eight twenty six says our apostle quoted it to the jews at rome but not precisely in the same words nor does the apostle use the very language of the prophet but deduces only the following opinion that god hath given them a spirit of bitterness and maliciousness so that they continue overwhelmed in a stupid slumbering state having eyes they see not and ears they hear not the prophet is commanded to harden the heart of the people of israel but paul penetrates the fountain itself because a brutish stupidity occupies all the senses when men are so given up to this state of madness and folly as to provoke and wet themselves against the truth by virulent incentives for paul does not only denominate it a spirit of giddiness and dimness but of remorse and pricking of conscience where indeed the very bitterness of gall displays itself nay even madness in rejecting the truth he pronounces the reprobates to be so maddened by the secret judgment of god that lost in stupefaction and amazement they can form no correct judgment of any kind for by the expression seeing they see not is implied the dullness and obtuseness of all their senses the addition until this day is paul's to prevent any objector from stating that the prophecy had been formally fulfilled and was therefore improperly applied to the period of preaching the gospel of christ since the apostle hints that the blindness described by the prophet did not continue merely for a day but had remained unchanged with the incurable obstinacy of the jews until the advent of the messiah and david saith the words are a little changed in this quotation from the psalmist but without any violation of the sense let their table become a snare before them and that which should have been for their welfare let it become a trap no mention is made of recompense in david but there is a general agreement in the whole passage between him and the apostle the psalmist curses the wicked and wishes that every source of their happiness and object of their desire which he means by table and their welfare may prove their ruin and destruction he then devotes them to blindness of spirit and prostration of strength and points out the first by blindness of the eyes and the last by the bending of their back we need not be surprised on finding the denunciations and imprecations of david to be extended to the whole nation of the jews for it is well known that many of the nobility and the great body of the people were opposed to the psalmist when we consider david was a type of christ it is easy to transfer the denunciations pronounced by the king of the jews against his enemies to the antitype christ jesus whose enemies imprecated curses even upon themselves 
let this blood be upon us and our children. Since therefore this curse awaits all the enemies of the Messiah, that their very food is converted into poison, and the gospel is to them an odour of death unto death, let us embrace the grace of God with humility and trembling. Since David speaks of the Israelites in this psalm, who were descended from Abraham according to the flesh, and possessed at that period the chief preeminence in the kingdom, Paul very properly applies this testimony of the sweet singer of Israel to the Jews of his own time, that the blindness of a large portion of the lineal descendants of Abraham, when the apostle lived, might neither appear a new nor uncommon event. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall salvation is come unto the Gentiles, for to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office, if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? I say then, have they stumbled? You will be much entangled in this dispute unless you attentively consider that the Apostle is speaking at one time concerning the whole nation of the Jews, and at another concerning individuals. Hence arises the great difference of his statements, and the reason why he sometimes says the Jews have been exterminated from the kingdom of God, cut off from the tree and hurried to destruction by God's judgment, and again on other occasions he denies that they have fallen from grace, nay, asserts they rather remain in possession of the covenant and have a place in the church of God. Paul now speaks with this distinction in his view, for since a great number of the Jews were opposed to Christ, so that the whole nation was almost seized with this perverse feeling, and very few among them exhibited any marks of sound understanding, Paul proposes the question, whether the Jewish nation had so stumbled against the rock Christ, that its complete ruin was inevitable, and no hope remained of repentance. He here justly asserts that there was no cause to despair of the salvation of the Israelites, or that they were so rejected by God that their restoration was impossible, or that the covenant of grace which God had once entered into with them was completely extinguished, since the seed of blessing still remained in the nation. It is evident this sense must be annexed to the language of the apostle, because in a former passage he joined certain ruin with the blindness of the Jews, while he here gives them hopes of their rising again, and these two propositions are directly opposed to each other such as have obstinately stumbled against Christ, have fallen and sunk down into perdition. But the nation itself hath not so fallen, as necessarily to involve the ruin or estrangement from God of every descendant of the father of the faithful. But through their fall salvation is come unto the Gentiles. The apostle distinctly states in this passage that the fall of the Jews had contributed to promote the salvation of the Gentiles, for the purpose of exciting the Israelites to jealousy, and thus leading them to think of repentance. Paul evidently directed his attention to the above-cited testimony of Moses, when the Lord threatens Israel that, as God had provoked him to emulation by false gods, so by the law of retaliation he will provoke the Jews by a foolish nation. The word here used implies the affection of emulation and jealousy, when we are roused in our feelings on seeing another preferred to us. If therefore the design of the Lord is to provoke Israel to emulation, she did not fall for the purpose of being plunged into eternal ruin, but that the divine blessing which was despised by the Jews might be bestowed upon the Gentiles, and thus Abraham's posterity might at last be roused to seek the Lord from whom it had revolted. 
our readers need not very much perplex themselves in making any application of the testimony adduced by paul for he does not urge the peculiar sense of the word but uses it only in a vulgar and usual manner for as emulation rouses a wife who has been rejected by her husband on account of her own fault to display an earnest zeal to be reconciled to him so it is possible according to the apostle that the jews on seeing the gentiles adopted in their place may be touched with a feeling of their rejection and aspire to regain reconciliation with the god of israel but if their fall since paul had taught that the gentiles had entered into the situation formerly occupied by the jews after the last had been rejected that he might not render the salvation of the jews odious to the gentiles as if the destruction of the former constituted the salvation of the latter he opposes this false opinion and adopts the contrary sentiment that nothing could contribute more to the promotion of the salvation of the gentiles than the flourishing and vigorous state of the grace of god among the jews to establish his proof he uses an argument from the less to the greater if the fall of the jews could rouse the gentiles and the diminishing decay and loss of the former be the cause of enriching the latter how much more would the fullness of the descendants of abraham add to the wealth of the heathen for the former is a state contrary to nature and the latter agreeable to its laws nor is the cogency of this reasoning weakened because the word of god was dispersed and spread abroad among the heathens after the jews had scornfully rejected and cast it from them with contempt and loathing for had the jews received the word of god their faith would have been productive of much more fruit than was occasioned in the present instance by their unbelief for the truth of god would have received a greater confirmation by its fulfilment being manifested in the jews and they would have made many disciples by teaching the doctrine of christ who had been turned away from the cross by the obstinacy of the posterity of abraham the antithetic character of the sentence would have been better preserved and more adapted to the subject under consideration if the fall of the jews had been opposed to the provoking stirring and raising up of the gentiles i give this admonition with a view to prevent my readers from expecting in this passage all the ornaments of elocution and to secure them from feeling any disgust on account of paul's ignorance of oratory paul's writings are intended to form the breast heart and affections to piety peace truth and virtue not the tongue to the fascinating arts of eloquence for i speak to you gentiles paul confirms his opinion by the strongest reasoning that the gentiles are deprived of nothing if the jews again return into favour with the great deliverer from the captivity of sin for he shows the salvation of the jews and gentiles to be so closely connected together that the same means contribute to promote the advancement of both he addresses the gentiles in the following manner since i am peculiarly appointed an apostle to you and on this account it is my duty to procure with a peculiar zeal and study your salvation which is committed to my care and omitting as it were every other pursuit should devote myself to this one great object i shall continue to perform my duty with fidelity if i shall gain any of my own nation to become the disciples of the lord jesus and this will redound to the glory of my ministry and your own spiritual welfare for whatever conduced to add to the honour of paul's ministry was useful in promoting the salvation of the gentiles and this was the end and design of all his labours the apostle uses the word to provoke them to jealousy in this passage that the gentiles may desire the fulfilment of the prophecy described deuteronomy thirty two twenty one i will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people i will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation when they fully understand its usefulness in contributing to their own salvation might save some of them observe from this passage how a minister of the word of truth may be said to save in his own way and manner those who are brought by him to the obedience of faith 
for we ought as the stewards of god's mysteries so to conduct the dispensation of salvation to our people as to know that all the virtue and efficacy of it is in the power of god and thus bestow on him the praise he deserves we must also keep in mind that the preaching of the gospel is the instrument by which the salvation of believers can be procured and notwithstanding it can avail nothing without the spirit of the author of all happiness yet its energy is exerted with very powerful effects when the internal influences of the holy ghost act with might and vigour for if the casting away many consider this to be an obscure passage and some interpreters give it a very improper construction yet it ought in my opinion to be regarded as affording another argument derived from the comparing of the less with the greater in the following manner if the rejection of the jews could be attended with so powerful an effect as to occasion the reconciling of the gentiles how much more efficacious will the receiving of the jews be may it not justly be considered a resurrection from the dead for paul invariably insists on this truth that the gentiles have no cause for envy as if their own condition would be rendered worse by the jews being received into favour for since the father of mercy has in a wonderful manner brought light out of darkness and life from death we have much greater cause to expect according to paul's reasoning that the resurrection of a people already dead will quicken the gentiles reconciliation does not differ as some object from resurrection and we understand resurrection to mean in the present instance that grace by which we are transferred from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life for though the subject matter treated of by these different words be the same yet they do not convey the very same sense and force in their original meaning and this affords sufficient cogency and strength to the argument for if the first fruit be holy the lump is also holy and if the root be holy so are the branches and if some of the branches be broken off and thou being a wild olive tree wert grafted in among them and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree boast not against the branches but if thou boast thou bearest not the root but the root thee thou wilt say then the branches were broken off that i might be grafted in well because of unbelief they were broken off and thou standest by faith be not high-minded but fear for if god spared not the natural branches take heed lest he also spare not thee for if the first fruit be holy by comparing the dignity of the jews and gentiles he deprives the latter of all cause for pride and allays the indignation of the former to the utmost of his power for he shows that the gentiles are so far from excelling the jews in any respect if they merely allege nothing save their own prerogative for securing honour that they would be left very far behind should they enter fairly into the contest we ought never to forget that in this comparison nation is contrasted with nation not man with man they will be found equal in this mutual comparison because they are both the sons of adam the only dissimilitude between the two arises from the jews being separated from the gentiles that they might become a peculiar people to the lord they were sanctified therefore by a holy covenant and honoured by a peculiar nobility which god did not at that time deign to bestow upon the gentiles and because the powerful character of the covenant appeared to be much diminished at that period he orders us to direct our attention to abraham and the patriarchs with whom the blessing of god was neither vain nor inefficacious he infers therefore that an hereditary holiness had passed over from the patriarchs to all their posterity nor would this conclusion have been valid had the apostle treated only of persons without paying regard in an especial manner to the promise for a father because he is just does not immediately transfer his integrity to his son but the lord sanctified the father of the faithful to himself on this very condition that his seed should likewise be holy 
and the god of love therefore bestowed holiness not only upon the person of abraham but the whole of his kindred and offspring and on this account the argument of the apostle is conclusive that all the jews are sanctified in their father he also confirms this by adducing two comparisons the former he takes from the ceremonies of the law and nature supplies him with the other for the first fruits that were offered sanctified the whole lump and in the same manner the goodness of the juice is diffused from the root to the branches and the same relationship exists between the posterity and the original parents as between the first fruits of the whole mass which is sanctified and between the branches and the root it is not surprising therefore if the jews are sanctified in their father all difficulty is removed by understanding holiness to mean nothing else but the spiritual nobility of the race of abraham which was not indeed peculiar to their nature but flowed to them from the covenant the hereditary adoption of the jews i confess justly entitles them to be regarded as naturally holy but i am now speaking of our first nature from adam and according to this acceptation of the term we are all cursed in our original parent the dignity therefore of an elect people in the proper acceptation of the term is a supernatural privilege and if some of the branches be broken off he now touches upon the present dignity of the heathens which exactly resembles the future honour of branches that being taken from another stock are inserted into some distinguished tree the heathens sprang as it were from a wild unfruitful olive tree since they found nothing except a curse in their whole race all their glory therefore arises from their new engrafting not their old stock and the gentiles have no cause for glorying over the jews on account of any honour which they may possess paul also prudently diminishes the harshness of his expression by saying certain branches were broken off not the whole surface of the tree cut away god also in the same manner took some from different parts among the gentiles and engrafted them into a sacred and blessed trunk but if thou boastest thou bearest not the root the gentiles cannot dispute with the jews concerning the excellence of their race without entering into a controversy with abraham himself which would have been too base since he resembles the root by which they are carried and becomes lively and vigorous it would be as absurd for the gentiles to boast against the jews as for the branches to be high-minded against the root this is true when the excellence of the race of the jews is taken into consideration for paul always wishes us to direct our attention to the beginning of our salvation for we know after christ's advent the wall of separation was destroyed and the whole world was sprinkled with the grace which god had before deposited with his own people the calling of the gentiles it follows from this view of the case resembled the ingrafting of a tree nor did they unite in any other way with the people of god but by striking their roots into the stock of abraham thou wilt say then he states in the person of the gentiles every pretense they could possibly offer for themselves and so far from its being calculated to increase their pride it afforded them cause for humility for if the jews were cut off on account of unbelief and the gentiles ingrafted because of their faith nothing remains for them but to recognize the grace of god and thus be formed to modesty and submission for the natural consequence and inherent property of faith is to produce a low opinion of ourselves and to cherish fear this fear however is by no means opposed to the confidence and security of faith for paul does not wish our belief to experience any vacillation or any alternation between confidence and doubt much less the shadow of consternation or at least particle of trepidation what then will be the nature and character of this fear as the lord orders us to be engaged in the consideration of two subjects so a twofold affection of the mind must necessarily be produced our heavenly father wishes us to direct our unceasing attention to the wretched state and condition of our own nature 
this can produce nothing else but horror wearisomeness perplexity and despair and we must therefore be so completely thrown down worn out and bruised as to pour out our complaints and groans to the fountain of all pardon and love this state of horror produced by a consideration and reviewing of our own character prevents not our minds from relying and calmly resting on the goodness of jehovah this wearisomeness precludes us not from the enjoyment of full consolation in the god of all comfort this perplexity anxiety and despair debar us not from the possession of solid and firm joy and hope in the bosom of eternal holiness wisdom and power the fear therefore here described by the apostle is opposed as an antidote to pride and contempt because every one in proportion to his arrogance becomes too secure and at last insolent against others and on this account we have cause so far to entertain fear lest our heart inflated with pride should swell extol and magnify itself but the apostle seems to cast some doubt upon our salvation when he exhorts us to take care lest god spare not the gentiles i answer this exhortation as it relates to the subduing of the flesh which is always insolent even in the children of god detracts nothing from the certainty and assurance of faith we ought however particularly to observe and fix in our memory one of my late observations that the apostle is not directing his discourse so much to individual unbelievers as to the whole body of the gentiles among whom there might be many inflated with pride without cause and who professed rather than possessed faith paul threatens not without reason the cutting off of the gentiles on account of those who had only the form of godliness as will be pointed out again on another occasion for if god spared not the natural a very powerful reason why we should repress all our high-mindedness for never ought the rejection of the jews to recur to our memory without our shaking and being appalled with horror for what else caused their ruin but the contempt of the divine judgment in which they were enveloped in consequence of their supineness and security arising from the dignity with which they were honoured these natural branches were not spared what then shall become of us wild and foreign branches if we become excessively high-minded this reflection which is well calculated to inspire us with diffidence in our own powers makes us cling with more boldness and closeness to the goodness of god it is hence also again more clearly proved that paul addresses his discourse in common to the whole body of the gentiles because the cutting off mentioned by paul could not apply to individuals whose election is unchangeable since it is founded on the eternal purpose of an all-wise god paul therefore threatens the gentiles that a punishment was prepared for their pride if they insulted the jews because god will again reconcile his former people to himself from whom he has been divorced End of section sixteen